0: Uh, we're going to now uh, read uh, the scripture together, God's word together. And uh, 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 as you know, if you've been uh, with us these last few weeks, really since uh, September, we've been going through uh, uh, verse by verse through uh, the book of Ephesians. And today we read se- we've reached uh, the second half of chapter 5. <clears throat> so do turn with me. It's on a page one thousand one hundred and seventy-six. One thousand one hundred seventy-six. Do keep uh, your Bibles open as well to make sure I'm being faithful uh, to God's uh, Word. And we're gonna we're gonna pray before we begin. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just uh, we thank you that you are faithful. And Lord, we just pray for all of us gathered here today that we would have hearts that are open to that faithfulness. Lord, we, we, before we gathered, Lord, there's a sense in the prayer meeting of uh, uh, the, beginning, uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. And so as we come and sit under your word, Lord, we just pray that we would honor you and have our hearts open to hearing from you today. Lord, apply this word practically into our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, we begin. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband." This is the word of the Lord. Actually, I missed out um, quite accidentally the opening verse. And the opening verse um, here is uh, verse 21. The reason in our Bibles it's in a paragraph on its own is because basically commentators don't know where to put it. It's sort of... um, uh, sort of, it, it, it concludes because what it speaks about in the latter half of, of the last section, we didn't quite get onto last week, is about what it means to be a spirit-filled Christian. And to be a spirit-filled Christian means submitting to one another out of reverence. But also, this submitting to one another out of reverence, is then flows through into all these practical applications which we'll see in verses sort of, uh, well, today's verse and also next week's about children and parents and slaves and masters. And so really, that verse is what hangs all of this together. It is the great ethic that we're sort of uh, looking at today. Submit to one another about, out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, there are some passages in Scripture that when you read them, it's like you're walking through a desert and you reach a glorious oasis. Life-giving water in the desert. And it's a wonderful, wonderful place to be. Sort of spiritual water for the soul. And then there are other passages in Scripture. It feels like we're sort of walking through the desert and then suddenly you're set upon by a pack of wild animals and uh, and this to some of us can feel a little bit like that like when we when we have those first verses wives submit to your husbands as to the lord and so i suppose today sort of what we what we're exploring is 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 this part of the bible and the other parts that sort of make us wince are they just sort of wince away moments uh, from an otherwise glorious redemption story or actually is this good news for us. And so we're left thinking with, with the one question I want to tackle here today is what on earth does this passage mean? What on earth does this passage mean? But before we get on to uh, asking that question, what does this passage mean? I think we first need to ask the question, what does this passage not mean? What does this passage not mean? Now, I want to be clear, this passage is not any biblical justification for any kind of oppression or subjugation of women in any way. And, and, and the reason why we know this is because context is everything. When, when Paul first penned this letter, the position of women in marriage and the position of women in society were, were utterly terrible. You know, the idea of a husband actually having any kind of friendship with his wife was sort of unheard for. You know, around this time, there was, a, there was a, a, an ancient Athenian saying. It was something that everybody knew, and it went like this. Wives are for legal heirs, prostitutes are for pleasure. That was sort of the mantra of their day. That's how wives were looked for, looked at. And so it was just part of society for men to sleep with their wives and then to sleep with a host of of other women. Indeed, prostitution was so much part of the everyday life that, for for instance, in places like Rome, taxation of prostitution formed a huge part of the treasury. But Christianity, you see, has a very high view of sex, a high view of sex, and therefore it has a profound sexual ethic. And Christianity has also had a very clear emphasis on the equality of all. And so a profound racial ethic, social ethic, and gender ethic. The idea of equality, uh, historians would say, well, well, if you read our book that we were reading over the summer, uh, Glenn Scrivener, uh, The Air That We Breathe, the whole idea of equality is a profoundly Christian ethic. It wouldn't be here without sort of the teachings of Jesus and the New Testament. So what Paul is doing here is he's presenting a radical challenge to the culture of his time. And he is elevating the position of women which were basically on the floor and he's raising them to be equal to men. And we read this, for instance, in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's the the level, that's the model of love that we have here in this passage. And this would be radically challenging when women were sort of thought of as commodities. The idea that you should love your wife, well, well, maybe, the idea that you should love and give yourself up for her as Christ lay down his life upon the cross, radically challenging. Verse 28, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Again, radically challenging, a profound gender ethic. Even verse 22, which today can sort of like, oh, man, what's this all about? can make us wince. This too, verse, that says, wives, submit to your husbands. Wives, submit to your husbands. This too would have been a challenge to the first readers. Why? Because in, in this context, the idea of, 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 in any literature, women being addressed w- would have just been absolutely bizarre. The idea of children being written to would have been bizarre. The idea of slaves being written to would have been bizarre. But look what, who's, who is being addressed in this passage that we're looking at this week and next week. Wives are talked to, and then children are talked to, and then slaves are talked to. And more than that, instead of saying husbands and then wives, wives are talked to first and then husbands. Instead of parents and children, children then parents. Slaves and then their earthly masters—it's sort of radically countercultural, and this is a this profound social and gender ethic sort of holds this all together. And there's one central ethic which I sort of said, um, sort of, is holding it all together, and that's verse 21: Submit to one another out of reverence for. Christ. Christ is our model out of reverence for Christ for Christ for Christ is sort of like the chorus that goes through this week's and next week's passage Christ is our model you know submit to one another wives submit to husbands yes husbands submit to wives yes children to parents yes parents to children yes slaves to masters obviously masters to slaves yes submit to to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so, what we hear, have here is a radical reordering of social relationships. Those who at the time were perceived to be at the bottom were, were elevated to a position of equality um, it, it, through Paul's teaching. And so, this passage is not supporting any kind of oppression or subjugation of women. Nothing could be further away from the truth of Paul's countercultural message when he writes the Ephesians. So, having briefly looked at what this passage does not mean, let's turn our attention to the, the question of what does this passage mean? What does this passage mean? And how can we apply it to our lives? You know, we, we all come from different positions. Some of us are going to be married. Some of us are, are single in a relationship. Some, some are wanting a relationship. Some are, are, are widowed. Some are divorced. Wherever we are, what does this passage mean and how can we apply it to our lives? Of the first thing we need to sort of be honest about is this passage is about marriage. It's one of the key passages in the, in the Bible that speaks about marriage and, and uh, uh, this idea of a relationship between a husband and a wife. But I pray that as we reflect upon this passage, you know the Holy Spirit will speak to every one of us gathered here. And the first thing I want to say uh, before we we dive into what this passage says is that we need to continue to make sure that we're not making an idol out of marriage in the church. You know, too often in the past we've sort of idolized marriage and, 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 and this has the effect of making single people feel as if they're second class citizens. And this just is not on. You know, single people make up 40% of the adults living in the UK, and church should be a place where they know they are valued, they are valued, and they belong at the very heart of our community. Church should be a place in which single people find homes within families. That's our vision of sharing lives together. You know, our, our passage is speaking about the relationship of, ma- of marriage, but my hope and prayer for our church, and not just for our church, for all churches out there, is everyone, whether they're married, single, or something else, everyone may enjoy within the church family, we use that word intentionally, That this church community, real, authentic, life-giving relationships which we need to flourish we need these things to flourish, and I pray that as a church, we would be a place where these things are found. And so as we look at the relationship marriage, I also want to uh, acknowledge the, the sort of deeply painful reality of divorce. And, and also the fact that some people here will, will, be, will be widowed. And that's also a very deeply painful thing that people continue to live with day in day out. So whether you're widowed or whether you're divorced, you know, uh, if, if this is if this is a, a painful reality that you have experienced, we want to say that you are loved and that we are for you and that we are here for you. And and yes, this passage speaks about the ideals of marriage, but we recognize that we live in a broken and a hurt world and and we have not walked in your shoes and we do not know what it's like for you. Uh, to to having walked the path that you walked but we want to say that we stand alongside you and that we love you and so recognizing that we all come to this passage uh, from different places let's have a look what it has to say to us today and so as I've said this passage is about marriage and at its center there's there's a verse, verse 31, if you want to have a look about it. And it's a verse that's in speech marks because it's a direct quote from Genesis chapter 2, verses 24. It's the same quote that Jesus quotes when, he, when he's asked about marriage. And what this is, taking us back to Genesis 2, is that they're rooting this idea of marriage yeah, in creation. And by rooting it in creation they 're saying that this is ordained by God this is god 's good god 's good image yeah this is this is not something to do with the fallenness of the world it has been made in creation and anything which is made in creation this is why Jesus takes marriage back to creation anything that has been sort of made in creation. No, no culture can dismantle. This is God's sort of plan for our lives. And so marriage, what's it say here? For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, the two will become one flesh. And so marriage was ordained by God in creation and, and this definition of marriage was, was reinforced uh, by Jesus in his teaching. And if you've been around at church for a few years, maybe in a few decades, you may remember the older authorized version where it says this. Instead of the word united, it says this. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. Cleave. That's a word we need to revive, isn't it? Cleave. What does that word "cleave" mean? Well, actually, it's a much better definition because that word "cleave" carries with it the, the, the more truer sense of the Hebrew word. What we unite, what we what we put as united, is actually better defined as "cleave" because the word "cleave" carries with it this this Hebrew sense of the word "covenant," and and the word "covenant" is an exclusive, permanent, legal. Personal binding commitment. And so there's this binding commitment in marriage. And so, what does this mean for us today? What's the fact that marriage means cleaving mean for us today? Well, it means that the essence of marriage is not a declaration of present love, though it should be. People who marry should love each other. But at its essence, and it's, it's a creation definition. The essence of marriage is not a declaration of present love. It's a binding promise of future love. It's a binding promise of future love. Because, you know, lots of people can say, I love you. You don't have to be married to say, I love you. There are many people out there that are in love with one another and they're not married. But marriage is not a declaration of present feelings. It's a promise of of future action. And it's not a promise to feel loving at all times because no one can promise to feel loving at all times. Instead, marriage is a promise to be loving, to be tender, caring, cherishing, faithful throughout all the ups and downs of emotions, through all the ups and downs of circumstances. It is a binding promise of future love long term through thick and thin. And I don't need to tell you that this is sort of a complete loggerheads with contemporary culture, which basically says that, that, that chemistry is the thing that's important, and covenant, really, we don't care about. But uh, this definition is saying, actually, covenant. That's what marriage is about. Marriage is, in essence, a binding promise of future love. And so we now need to ask, you know, what is the purpose of marriage? What does this text have to say about the purpose of marriage? Now, there's not one sole purpose of marriage. You know, uh, it, is a relationship in cho- it is a relationship in which children might um, but not always be born and, and raised. Uh, it's a relationship in which intimacy can be enjoyed, support, uh, found. There are many purposes of marriage. But what we want to do is see what this text has to say about the purpose of marriage. And this text says uh, that the purpose of marriage is that it cleanses, it cleanses. The word cleanses is used in our passage. Now what do I mean by this? Um, Well, what is the purpose, I wanna ask you a question, what is the purpose that Jesus came into your life? You know, Jesus came into our lives in order to make us holy. To, to restore us to what it means to be more fully human. That's why Jesus comes into our life. He comes into our lives to cleanse us. And that is what Jesus is doing with the church. And we read that in this passage here. Husbands, love your wives. I'm reading from verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her, by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Jesus is in the business of, of, of making us holy. Uh, uh, there's, a, there's a Christian word called sanctification. It's when Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, is constantly at work in our lives, making us more and more holy. And this verse also indicates that, that, that one of the purposes of marriage is to make us holy. Because it says all about Jesus making the church holy and cleansing the church. And then the very next verse, verse 28, says, In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives. The idea of, of, of marriage is to make us holy. Now, I want to be honest. I think we can all be honest. There are times in, in, in this last week, you know, in, in every week, in which, you know, being married, I don't think is necessarily making me into deeper and deeper levels of holiness. Um, maybe more and more bickering, yeah, but maybe not deeper levels of holiness. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm confident that Catherine uh, will agree with me. You see, when you live alongside one another, you rub each other up. And, and, and whilst it might not feel holy at the time, over time, you know, if you if you're, if you're open yourself up to the work of the Holy Spirit, over time, this friction, this rubbing up alongside, not only sort of, and this, this is why it applies to all of us, not only between husband and wife, but between any meaningful relationship this sort of friction when we live alongside one another in authentic relationships help us to become more and more beautiful. Almost like, like rough stones. Imagine rough stones in an ocean tide being tossed to, backwards and forwards you know, and being rubbed and knocked against each other. Sooner or later they get transferred into beautiful, smooth pebbles. But if you ask culture... What, what are you looking for in a future spouse? You know, probably nine out of ten times, they'll say this, I want someone who will not change me. Or I want someone who will accept me as I am. But in other words, you know, this view of marriage that contemporary culture has, it, it, it's just marriage, is simply an appendix. You know, it, it's simply something that will supplement or enhance my life. It's something that will make my life better. I don't want it to change me but I want it just to enhance, to sort of add on. Now, let's be clear, the Bible clearly says that marriage you know, should involve fun and friendship and companionship and intimacy. All these things are important, but they are all enhanced. If we can all admit, and I can certainly admit, that I've got a lot of rough edges. We all need to admit that we've got rough edges, that marriage is a gift, you know, and deep relationships are a gift because they, they cause these rough edges to be smoothed off. And so we need community, we need fellowship. And, and for some, this is found in marriage. For others, it's found in deep friendship, which is what we want the church to be about. We need community, um, not, just, not just that people would love us for who we are. Now, we do love you for who you are, and it's important to be in relationships with people who love you for who you are. But what is better is to have people who love you for who you are, but are also excited about who God is calling you to become. And this has a practical implication for, for all of us. You know, in any deep relationship, what's a practical implication for all of us? In any deep relationship, including marriage, you can expect confrontation. That's it. You know, we're living in cuckoo land if we, can, if we think well, you know, we, we won't expect confrontation. I can expect my wife, You know, she doesn't point out all my bad faults, but I find that living alongside her, actually I become more and more aware of the things that Jesus wants to address in my life. And I want to address them if I want to become more fully human. Now I've just seen the time, and t- time is running out. And so uh, lastly, I just want to sort of uh, make some attempt at, Uh, And again, we've only been able to give a brief overview, as we do every week, of this whole passage. You know, we haven't gone through word from word, and there may be some words or sections that you want to have a conversation with me afterwards about, and I'm more than happy to do this this week or any other week. Um, But I also don't want to shy away from from the tough parts. So the, the, the final point I want to sort of briefly address is what on earth are we to make of verses 22 to 23? What on earth are we to make of this? Wives, submit yourselves to your husband's as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the savior. Do we do a sort of Thomas Jefferson, I think it was Thomas Jefferson, who just cut bits out of his Bible, you know. Do do we just, oh, we'll just scribble that out. What, What on earth do we make of this? Well, briefly I just want to make three quick observations. First is this, submission is a universal Christian virtue. It's a universal Christian virtue. This is something we've already uh, covered this morning. Our passage opens with this universal call to submission. Verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence. To Christ. Indeed, if you had time, I'd be able to unpack that, that submission and love is basically synonyms of one another. Because what does it mean to, to submit? It means to, to give yourself up for someone else. And what does it mean to, to love? Well, it means, according to this definition, to give yourself up for someone else. So love and submission are almost synonyms. Submission, is as a Christian virtue and discipline, could be a whole uh, sermon in itself. You know, if you're interested in this, in this model, Richard Foster uh, has written a book which many of you may have on your bookshelf. It's called The Celebration of Discipline. And he dedicates a chapter over to this universal uh, practice of submission. He's, he's also written other books. In another book that he's sort of uh, inputted into, The Making of an Ordinary Saint, uh, actually written by his son, but he writes in it, he, he writes this, submission is the spiritual discipline that frees us from the everlasting burden of always needing to get our own way. In submission, we are learning to hold things lightly. We are also learning to diligently watch over the spirit in which we hold others, honoring them, preferring them, loving them. So submission is a universal Christian discipline. Next, what on earth are we going to make of this headship? You know, what's it mean about the, the, uh, the, the, the husband is the head of the wife? Well, headship, point number two, headship is about loving, tender care. Because we need to look at the text and how the text defines headship, not how contemporary culture defines headship or how, what we think of headship. Now, let's be clear headship, as defined in this passage, is not to do with rule. We need to acknowledge that that very sadly, historically, women have often and grievously been abused by a corrupt definition of headship. And also a corrupt definition of submission. Such such a false definition has led to the cruelty and oppression of women in many different ways. Forms and this passage is not saying that the husband is the ruler or the husband has uh, he, he has to exercise control and make all the decisions. This concept of of husbands ruling over their wives is not part of the created order. You know, some people who would argue for that try to take us back to sort of Genesis three, and in Genesis three, we, we, we that these words are spoken to the woman: "Your desire will be for your husband." and he will rule over you. So some people who want to sort of do that take you back to Genesis 3. But what they fail to understand is actually they've taken us back to Genesis chapter 3, which is to do with the fallenness of the world. And we do need to acknowledge that, the, that, that women have been subjugated by women, but it is to do with the fallenness of the world, and it's not in Genesis chapter 2 when they are together as Equals. So Christ has come into our world now and we're not meant to be going, to, we want the fallenness of the world, Christ is trying to undo that and he is doing that by bringing about equality between the sexes and equality between husband and wife and so headship is not to do with rule, our passage shows that headship is to do with care and I wish I had more time to sort of unpack this for instance, you know, in, in, ver- in the same verse in which it talks about sort of headship uh, it talks about, let's have a look, as Christ Christ is the head of the church, his body, over which he is Lord. No, doesn't say that. It says over which he is Savior. He came to save us by giving his life. It's to do with loving care. And again, it says um, uh, that, that, uh, about marriage, in which Christ came and cares, cares for his church. Headship is to do with loving, tender care. And, and thirdly, submission is to be given to a lover. Submission is to be given to a lover. Notice how this passage does not say, wives submit, husbands take charge. Wives submit, husbands rule. It says, wives submit, husbands love. And here the picture is of a wife submitting to a lover, not to an ogre. The husband loves, and the model of love is the cross. It's self-sacrificial love of fully giving himself to her. So, tell you what, the, the, the bit that I like in, in all marriage services, the bit that almost wells me up in, in tears, is, is this words: all that I am, I give to you. That's the model of love. Complete, self-sacrificial loving and giving over. You know, all that I am, I give to you. Submission is to be given to a lover. And, and I wish I had more, more time to unpack that there are limits to submission. For instance, uh, Peter talks, in 1 Peter chapter 2, talks about how the people of God should submit to ruling authorities. But then in Acts chapter 4, when he's asked by these same ruling authorities not to, not to speak about Jesus anymore, he, he doesn't just submit to them. He says, well, you know, you know, well basically, he says, it's never going to happen because you know uh, cuz you know we are to submit but there are limits to submission if it takes us away from god if it's something that god doesn't want us to do then we're to resist that and so submission is a universal christian virtue headship is about loving tender care and submission is to be given to a lover i think we've run out of time thank you for your patience we're going to stand we're going to pray and we're going to worship